magical morphine now, please. Chomp and romp. Love a good chomp and romp. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, go to timeout. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap, he saw through it. What tipped you off? It's an arm, buddy. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Will Wallace, and I'm joined by... Calissa Mullis. And Kate Colvin. Every week we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week we're talking about season three, episode eight, Visionary. If you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you might have heard about Calissa's fan theory regarding Visionary. Her theory is that the Paige storyline is about Peter and not Derek. We'll be talking about that theory throughout this episode. And for this discussion, we're joined by special guest, Ashby Brame. Woo! Ashby, can you uh, remind our listeners about yourself? Yes. So I am a co-host of the What the What podcast, and we're a pop culture podcast that's sort of through the lens of 80s babies, 90s kids. And we're about to start our nine on the 90s season where we dive into nine episodes covering all things 90s. You know, we have something for everyone. We have just sort of moved to a seasonal concept. We used to be every week, but we've got MCU episodes, cartoon episodes, comics, fashions, books, music, whatever you could possibly want. So, and we're not serial. So you can listen to one or two episodes or you can listen to all 100 plus. My God, that's such a big number. Yeah, we're at super 34, impressive. and I'm just like, wow, look at look at all the good we've done in just 34 <laughs> episodes. You guys done. are killing it. Thank you. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, alpha and beta. The beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled for what's to come. The second section, alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta section. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Ashby, where can our Wolfies find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ashby Gray, that's G-R-A-Y. And you can follow What the What on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at What the What Media, all one word, and find us on Twitter at WTW underscore media. Visionary was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. With Derek MIA following Boyd's death, Styles goes to Cora and Peter to try to understand why Derek is the way he is. Peter tells a story about Derek's first love, a relationship that ended in heartbreak seven years ago, but Styles thinks that Peter might be an unreliable narrator. Meanwhile, Allison and Scott go to Gerard to hear a story about Deucalion. Scott believes that Gerard might be an unreliable narrator too. And that's not the only connection between those two narratives. Both of these stories might have consequences for the impending supernatural showdown in Beacon Hills. One little side note before we move into quotes. The script didn't have a title on the draft that you shared with me, Will. Oh, yeah? It just said episode 32, even though it was like the third draft. Hmm. 
the right. episode that shall not be named. But you are in the writer's room yet, so you don't know. Uh, I was in the writer's room by this time, but I don't remember. I just remember the titles I came up with for episodes. Our favorite quote for this episode was an interesting exchange between Styles, Peter, and Cora. Styles says, how old was he? How old were you? How old are you now? And Peter replies in a typical Peter fashion of, not as young as we could have been, but not as old as you might think. Styles says, okay, that was frustratingly vague. And he asks Cora, how old are you? I'm 17. Styles says, but see, that's an answer. That's how we answer people. Cora says, well, 17, how you measure in years. And Styles says, all right, I'm just going to drop it. And he'll never find out the answers. Nope. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Hales, man. <laughs> <laughs> so the honorable mention for this episode was Cora and Styles at the end of the episode. And Cora says, what's that look on your face? And Styles says, what look? And she goes, the kind of look that makes me want to punch you. And he's like, oh my God, you were so Derek's sister. I forgot. (laughs) That is so great. I love it. Yes. And then our final honorable mention goes to Scott for being a total badass when he says to Gerard at the end of the episode, if you lied and it gets people hurt, I'll be back to take away more than just your pain. Mic drop. Very good. Very good. But also like kind of posturing because Scott's whole thing is like, we don't kill people. (laughs) Yes, it is absolutely not a real threat, but it's a real sounding threat. So the episode opens with Cora telling Styles a story about the Argents hunting werewolves in Beacon Hills seven years ago. In the flashback, we see 15-year-old Derek running for his life. All right, guys, that is some awkward running from that kid right there. I told you he went through an awkward phase, Will. He, he had awkward years. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? you? You did, yes. The hunters shoot a werewolf from a different pack through the neck with an arrow on the grounds that he killed two of the hunters' own. Damn, right through the throat. Brutal. An interesting fact, the hunter right there who just fired that arrow, that was Tony, Jeff's personal trainer. Very great guy. That's fun. In the script, we see the glow of the other werewolf's eyes. It says his eyes glow, causing Derek's eyes to brighten in response, surging a brilliant yellow. He says, you're hale, aren't you? And then gets hit by the arrow. And then it says, Derek stares in horror as the young man collapses. As he hits the ground, the glow recedes from his eyes. I was a little taken back by that because, I mean, literally the arrow comes through his neck and he like hits the ground dead. And I just... From what we've seen of the healing ability so far with werewolves, it just seems a little far. I mean, unless the arrow like severed his spinal cord on the way in, like that seems like a mere flesh wound for a werewolf. (laughs) Derek narrowly avoids suffering the same fate when Peter catches an arrow before it can hit him. This must be the scene that Michael Fjordback told us about where he was filming the shot of catching the arrow And he was supposed to grab Derek's shoulder and spin him around so they could run. But he didn't realize B-cam was right behind them. So Ian Nelson busted his face right into the lens. Uh, It sucks. But yeah, I think that's the scene. Oh, I mean, obviously, this is just kind of how Hollywood works. But it's like the when when Teen Wolf does prologue, the years get a little wonky. So it's like Peter looks very gentle way to put it. (laughs) And by the time we get to the fire, he looks like Ian Bone. So, you know, like, man, were those some rough aging years on Peter? (laughs) In the present, Cora explains that Derek and Peter hid out for two days. Styles asks if two days is standard or if Derek could be on an extended getaway. Cora asks why he cares. Because Styles loves Derek. That's their spinoff show. Styles loves Derek. Like Johnny loves Chachi. I'd watch it. Styles explains that he cares because of everything going on from the drop to the alpha pack. 
since Derek is the one everyone seems to be after, he should do something about it. Is that true of the Duroc, to their knowledge? Tori says she's not sure if Derek is capable of that. He's different than when she knew him. Styles asks what he was like, and Peter comes down the stairs dramatically to join the conversation, saying that Derek was a pretty typical teenager, like Scott. Romantic, narcissistic, tolerable only to other teenagers. How long do you think Peter was waiting at the top of the stairs to make that entrance? A while, but he's he's like, yes, like Scott. Sleepy, never picked up his phone. You get it. <laughs> I love how uh, uh, Derek used to be a lot like Scott. Well, again, let's take this with a grain of salt since it's coming from Peter, right? But like, I know you guys have talked a lot in in previous episodes about how hard Derek kind of tries to help Scott, even though Scott's pretty much exactly what Peter calls him through all of season one, where he's barely tolerable. Um, <laughs> but maybe it's because Derek sees himself in like Scott's young teenage naivete. Like maybe that's why Derek worked, even though Scott literally hated him <laughs> to help him because Derek was like, that kid is me and I needed a lot of help. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting that's a good point yeah. yeah i can see that styles asks what happened to change derek oh what the f do you think changed him what kind of stupid ass question is that yeah styles that's pretty stupid i feel like that's something like scott would ask it's not that scott's stupid it's just like he you know i feel like would just be like wait but you know why is he like so angsty now and he just wouldn't he doesn't have the same kind of loss that styles has had so i feel like he wouldn't necessarily like connect connect the two right. as easily as like styles would yeah, he doesn't have the same emotional context. And also, he's he's myopic. And Derek's emotional state is not, it, it doesn't rate on things Scott cares strongly about. Peter says it was the same thing that changes a lot of young men. A girl. Styles is skeptical that Derek is the way he is because some girl broke his little heart. No. Also murder. He's the way he is because his whole family was burned alive, you idiots. I, I <laughs> no, I love Styles, but I just can't with the entire premise of this conversation they all know about how around 10 people in his family were brutally murdered in a supernatural hate crime they know that for six years he only had his big sister and that she was also brutally murdered and her body was cut in half and he found it and had to bury her by himself they know that his own uncle tried to kill him and scott and styles left him there they know he was kidnapped and tortured by the woman who murdered his family and he had to get out of the chains himself they know his current pack in quotes, left him for dead like a week ago. They know that he had three betas and two of the three were also brutally murdered, one of them right on his hands against his will like a day ago. And here, here they are like, but why is he so grumpy though? Like, I know that everyone who ever loved him is dead, but why isn't he more cheerful? You know what I mean? Wait, was it a girl? That had to be it, right? Not that everyone he knows minus two people were brutally killed before him. Two people who have told him to his face that they're disappointed in him. Yeah, it's so ridiculous because it's almost like they're ignoring all that just to be like, but wait, this is Derek's real trauma. And here he has plenty of trauma. And this yeah. is nothing compared to that. I mean, it's sad, but like, it's just nothing compared to all that we've already seen him endure. Yeah. And Styles was the one to introduce all that information about his family. That's how Derek's mm -hmm. entire existence was introduced on the show. Styles was like, that's Derek Hale. Fun fact, his whole family died in a, in a horrible house fire. Yes. And then we learn about sexual assault. And you're like, why is he like this? It's like, hmm, come on, guys, get your head out of your asses. But does he have any trauma is my question, though. Look, 
I'm not making excuses for Styles, but he could be kind of a dick when he's stressed. Like we're three seasons yeah. in, we know that we see him react badly to personally hyper stressful situations for him. So I just don't think maybe Styles is putting like the full trauma puzzle together, like with all the pieces in his brain in real time, because he's got so much he's currently processing. Maybe, right? I, I could see that. And if anything, it, what's more strange is Cora saying, He's different than when she knew him. And then Peter comes in and explains why by telling a story about something that happened a year before the fire, meaning Cora knew him for another year after this thing happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she knew about the eyes. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's weird that she seems like such an outsider to all of this. Like she's just hearing it along with Styles. whenever there's so much of it that she would have like really been there for, maybe not like knowing exact details but she would have been like oh you know Derek yeah had started like disappearing from the house more and like it, it just seems like she would have like been putting pieces together to be like oh so that's why his eyes changed mom never wanted to talk about it right like none of it seemed like it was anything that she was ever personally connected to yeah yeah and I can understand them not talking about it with her like that's fine but I, I think adults sometimes underestimate kids and what they pick up on like they might not understand the full context of something but when there's a major change in someone's life around them they'll notice something in the script Styles actually responds I thought it was a genetic thing which we get in the show but Peter replies Genetics, come on, Styles. Don't reduce our nature to something as boring and mechanical as DNA. If you want to know what changed Derek, then you need to know what changed the color of his eyes. I thought the whole, don't reduce it to something as boring as DNA. was kind of fun. It's funny, and it kind of goes back to how uh, we talked about that Jackson would have been a great beta for Peter because they have so much mm -hmm. in common. And it reminds me of in season two when Matt is like, are you, I, I don't think he says it exactly, but he's basically like, are you making a sex tape? And Jackson's like, how dare you assume that I would do something as boring and common as a sex tape? And it's like, that, that is, is Peter's day. whole energy too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Meanwhile, Allison brings Scott to talk to Gerard about Deucalion. The price of Gerard's story is that Scott must take away his pain. Magical morphine now, please. <laughs> that was my Gerard voice. Very good. So creepy. Very good. It, it's it was, like he was, it was spot on on this Zoom call with us. In the room. In Peter's story, 15-year-old jock Derek does some aggressive basketball moves in a misguided attempt to impress a girl who had asked him and his teammates to keep it down in the halls so she could practice the cello. Like Paige could look like a young Jennifer. I could definitely see that. You know, not for like the beauty mark next to her eye. Yeah, I totally, when you said that, realized that she has like a Tomie birthmark, like the from the Japanese horror manga slash movies. Derek tells the girl that he'll stop if she can get the ball from him. Kick him in the balls. Yep, that's the move. This scene is just totally Peter, man. It's Peter. Strong agree. In the script, it says, finally, Paige shakes her head at him and turns back to the music room. Watching her walk away, Derek only now notices the cruel tone to his friend's laughter. And I feel like this kind of fits in with your headcanon you spoke about before, Kate, of they don't fully pick up on social cues and situations. It was a fun challenge to him, and he wanted to, like, show off a bit to her, but he didn't mean to be, like, you know, so douchey and cruel about it yeah plus i like the idea that that was like a traditional werewolf mating display <laughs> <laughs> all right super effective <laughs> yeah 
I thought it was like putting your claws in a basketball, watching it slowly deflate. In season two, just going back to what we were saying about how this feels more like Peter, Derek's like, what do with basketball? Deflate basketball? (laughs) (laughs) When the girl returns to the music room, Derek follows and asks for her name. She says she'll tell him if he can play an instrument in the room. He plays the triangle, and with a sigh, she tells him her name is Paige. I'm sorry, but this is just like every teenage boy on the face of the planet. Like he just goes in like, ding, hits the triangle. And it's just like, you are so annoying. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Peter did say tolerable only to other teenagers. Mm So before Derek can tell her his name, she says she already knows who he is. I like how there's cello playing in the background just as part of the score. Dino keeping it classy. In the present, Gerard suggests that Deaton's kidnapping doesn't prove that Deaton isn't the Duroc. After all, the third body was found right after Deaton was found alive, almost like it was expected that he'd survive. Yeah, he's close to Scott, the lead character. (laughs) (laughs) Scott insists that Deaton would never let an innocent person die because he knows him so, so well. Disagree. I'd like to believe that, but I don't. (laughs) receipts scott receipts yes gerard says that scott would be surprised how far some people would go to get rid of someone like deucalion he killed my brother when he was (laughs) when deucalion was only seven years old he is a true monster (laughs) it was a real bad seed situation gerard adds that deucalion is unbeatable leading allison to conclude that this meeting is pointless and they should go gerard draws them back in by saying that deucalion isn't always blind. I like that in the script it says, she pauses. Only Scott sees her calculated expression knowing the threat would get to Gerard. On screen, only the audience really gets to be privy to this expression from Alice, but I like the idea of Scott getting to see it. Yeah. yeah. I wish that was on screen. It might be hard to portray wordlessly on screen as opposed to describe in the business. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Styles tries to suss out Derek and Paige's ages, but Peter gives a frustrating answer. Styles asks Cora her age, and she says 17. Styles barely has time to praise her straightforward answer before she adds, well, 17, how you'd measure in years. Styles has regrets. The way she smiles after that, I feel like she just added that second part to f- with him. Totally. Peter doesn't want to answer because he's a vain bitch. He's like, uh, between 16 and, well, we'll say 29. <laughs> <laughs> Styles goes back to asking about Derek and Paige. Peter says that one minute it's I hate you, don't talk to me, and the next it's frantic groping. And Styles is like, wait, really? I mean, what? I don't care. <laughs> There's uh, another bit in the script that was not included on screen that I felt feel like supports my theory. Styles says, forget I asked. What happened to Derek and Cello Girl? And Peter says, her name was Paige. Cora and Styles glance up at Peter's stern correction, but his odd tone disappears just as abruptly. And Peter is taking this awfully personally. Mm-hmm. I am a firm believer that if there's something in a script that doesn't make it to the film, that thing is not canonical. But I mean, come on. I mean, <laughs> come on. That's like, with all the stuff we're going to talk about later, that's, if that had been in the script, that would be the nail in the coffin on that theory there i feel like there'd be no way to say no it's not really true it's like peter doesn't care about anything but himself and apparently some girl who died yeah yeah for any other character it would be different like for someone like scott if this was something that had happened to styles let's say someone that he's really close to i could absolutely see him being very emotional and really caring a lot about this person even though that person didn't mean as much to him personally 
However, mm-hmm. Peter is not Scott. He is not that person. No. And that's what makes it so striking is because it's like, are you experiencing an emotion? I don't know if I've ever seen this before. <laughs> like the only time we ever see any emotion from him that I can remember is when he tries to get Kate to apologize at the end of season one. His voice breaks a little bit mm-hmm. when he's like, apologize for decimating my family that is really the first time we see any kind of sincere emotion from him and that's about again the murder of like 10 people that he was really close to and we're supposed to believe that this guy also is really touchy-feely about his nephew's girlfriend who died I just don't feel like character wise I would I'm like well that just tracks with what I know of this person and he didn't even really talk about Laura with any emotion he kind of just seemed like oh you know it wasn't really my my fault you know sorry it happened mostly but kind of (laughs) she was my least favorite niece so I guess it's fine yeah he was really like yeah that was unfortunate but you want to make an omelet you gotta break some eggs moving on like that was his (laughs) approach to having murdered his own niece right so in Derek and Paige's case, they did this at an abandoned distillery outside of Beacon Hills. Well, add abandoned distillery to the list of abandoned places in the greater Beacon Hills area. Like, is it a moonshine distillery? <laughs> I didn't know there was a big microbrew economy happening in Beacon Hills, but it's interesting It's to a know. medium-sized microbrew economy, and that's why it's abandoned. <laughs> Styles asked how Peter would know that. Peter says that he was Derek's closest confidant. But in the flashback, we actually see Peter peeping at them. He's just a peeping Tom. Did you just hear a voice say slower? What? What's going on? (laughs) Or, you know, do something interesting. You're boring. (laughs) Put those hands somewhere useful. (laughs) Love that line. I feel like this is the first hint that we get that Peter is an unreliable narrator. I mean, not that we couldn't already guess, not that we don't have theories already, but when you're actually watching the episode in real time, this is the first time that what Peter says and what they're showing absolutely does not match which I right. thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's kind yeah. of that first turn. Derek senses something's off about the distillery. It's almost like you have super hearing and should know that someone is creeping on you and your girlfriend. All these werewolves are real bad at recognizing when other werewolves are around. Yeah. See, I feel like it could make sense if young Derek was spying on Peter and his girlfriend. Being significantly younger and like idealizing Peter, just like being young and following him around. Guys, what if Paige is Peter's story? What? Yes. Join us on this adventure. That's one of us. <laughs> Although, in all honesty, this was the first time that I was watching that. Because the the first few times I saw this episode, I really just thought, well, Peter's an unreliable narrator. You know, obviously, that's not the way it happened. Obviously, Peter's very much more culpable in all of this. Like, he set some things in motion. Derek was very innocent. It never occurred to me that if you just put Peter in Derek's place, that would be the real story. Like I knew that there was a lot of lying going on and I knew that Peter was an unreliable narrator, but it it really never occurred to me until this time that like maybe he is telling a true story, but it's just he's placing Derek in his place because he can't, like he doesn't want to be, he wants to be removed from it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think of it when I watched it, but this was like, we watched this episode when it aired and Kalissa, after the first watch was like, I feel like that was Peter's story, like right off the bat. And so if we have a lot of detail here, it's because this has been fermenting for like 10 years. (laughs) Okay, I like it, I like it. 
In the script after Paige asks if he hears something, it says, Derek confused. It sounded like someone gagging. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I, I want to know, like, was it like supposed to be suggesting that Peter made a gagging sound after Derek's line about what if I never stop liking you? If so, that's hilarious. <laughs> I also imagine like a, like a young, like seven-year-old Derek or whatever being like, Eh, gross. He's like, girls, ugh. Paige asks him what's wrong, and he says he caught the scent of blood and heard something suspicious, so they should leave. So he's doing a great job hiding from her that he's a werewolf. Yes. He's exactly. so good at it. I mean, has a normal human being ever in conversation turned to you and said, I just caught the scent of blood? And if they have, did you run? <laughs> <laughs> in seconds, how much time did it take you to reach for the pepper spray when somebody said that? Right. <laughs> After Derek and Paige leave, a group of werewolves comes into the distillery, including Ennis, Kali, Deucalion, and a werewolf named Marco. Ennis explains that one of his pack was shot through the throat, dragged here, hung from the ceiling, and cut in half. Kali asks why she should care about someone in his pack. A young woman says she should care because hunters, especially Argents, don't discern packs. People theorize that's Laura Hale because she brings the clothes to Talia later. Oh, that's cool. She's credited as Laura Hale on IMDb. Actually, whatever. I was referring back to the script. It says Laura Hale, a strong young woman with the voice of a rising leader, steps out from the others. Nice. Deucalion counters that they do discern motive. Marco, Deucalion's beta, says that the werewolf in question killed a hunter, and that's why he was killed. And it says, it was an accident. You know, happens. You know how it is. He accidentally peeled his face off. I mean, that's just, <laughs> it was an accident. And wore it on his own. It happens sometimes. Easy, easy mistake. In the present, Allison clarifies that Deucalion, Ennis, and Collie's packs didn't live in Beacon Hills. Gerard confirms that's true, but says they came to seek guidance from Talia Hill, who could shift into a full wolf and was a leader among alphas. In the flashback, we see Talia Hale enter the distillery as a wolf and shift into a woman. Alicia Coppola has arrived. This is really, really cool. I love it. Yeah, this is great. I love those eyes. I feel like they should all be bowing to her properly, though. Me too. You know she's a Hale because she didn't have to come in like that. She was just being dramatic as hell. That's Hales for you. Hale. As Hale. <laughs> in the original script, Gerard specifies it was Derek's mother, Talia Hale, you know, in case anyone was unclear on that connection. Ah. <laughs> I love her full shift from, like, wolf to, to nudity, like a mad power yeah. move. Like, she doesn't even care. But even if nudity doesn't have that same, like, taboo quality that it has for a lot of human cultures, it still feels like a power move because it's like, remember, I could do a full shift and you can't. Like, she could have she just walked in there. Like, that would have served the purpose just as well. But she was like, no, no, I'm going to come in as a wolf with my red eyes. Then I'm going to shift into a human. And then I'm going to have my beta put clothes on my back so I don't have to lift a finger like a like a queen. Deucalion tries to dissuade Ennis from seeking revenge, saying the eye for an eye mentality can only end in them becoming no better than their enemies. Oh boy, that's on the nose. Or on the eye. <laughs> There's actually a really interesting extra scene here in the script. Peter leans closer to listen as a hand yanks him to his feet. He spins to face Lara. Peter says, what the hell are you doing? Lara says, me? You're the one lurking in the shadows all the time. He yanks free of her. Peter says, try to remember I'm your uncle. Lara starts to respond, but they both glance back when Ennis roars in fury, silencing the voices inside. 
Ennis says, useless debate. I'm done with it. Now both Lara and Peter peer through the gaps to watch Ennis approach the far wall in the distillery. He places the tips of his claws against the corrugated steel. Oh, see, I really regret that being cut because that was our only opportunity to see Peter and Laura interact. Yeah, right. I would have been really interested in seeing that. Though it would have affected my theory, so. <laughs> Ennis doesn't listen. He scratches a huge spiral into the entry of, to the distillery, the werewolf's mark for a vendetta. I feel like Talia just sighs. It's not as cool when other people try to do dramatic shit. Very true. And the score here sounds, to me at least, a, a little bit like the Walking Dead theme. Styles isn't impressed with what he perceives as werewolves' overzealousness around revenge, but Cora says he doesn't understand. Losing a pack member isn't just like losing a family member, it's like losing a limb. But that probably doesn't help explain why Derek is so upset. Nope. Peter adds that Ennis wasn't even allowed to see the body of his dead packmate. In the past, we see Stolinsky stop an enraged Ennis, trying to get to his beta's body at the hospital. Stolinsky explains that he's just a deputy who does as he's told. I'm just a deputy, just to clarify this in flashback. Stolinsky explains that no matter how close they were, Ennis and the Beta weren't related. Even if they never found the Omega's body in season two, Laura's body was cut in half in season one. It seems like Sheriff would have brought this instant up. It's pretty unique. If it's happened previously, like, how often do you find a body that's been cut in half? Maybe he did make a connection, but Styles didn't know? But Styles took his whole case file uh in the first season so he'd know if the sheriff had made notes about it oh shit you're right there's this there's actually a scribbled note in the case file that says wtf just like in 2003 <laughs> this is just what happens when you're writing and you can't go back and update the things as you go unfortunately also apparently back then it was important to get the body unlike in the present where they don't even look at Ennis's body after he's dead it seems like this was back when they cared about their packs well, they act like Kali at least cared about Ennis. That is true. Yeah, to be sure, if there were like very important werewolf super secret burial rituals, she would want to do that for Ennis. Mm -hmm. Right. Cora asks what any of this has to do with Derek. Peter says it's a confluence. Confluence or conflagration? Oh, there it is. Peter says he looked at Ennis's circumstances and saw profound loss, but Derek saw an opportunity. Hmm. Who does that sound like? Not Derek. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Derek the opportunist. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Derek has impeccable timing. That is definitely what is supported <laughs> by the last few seasons. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Derek saw an opportunity to be with Paige forever. I think it would have made more sense if they were saying, uh, you know, this is supposed to be Derek. Um, if he had found out that she was sick with something that couldn't be cured. For Peter, it just makes sense to me that he would just be like, yeah, I want her to be with me forever, so I'm going to do this. But I feel like Derek would need more motivation. Yeah. Like the fault in our stars, but with werewolves. <laughs> the fault in our rars. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Beautiful. In the past, Derek and Paige get closer. He distracts her while she's trying to practice her cello, though she insists she has laser-like focus. I'll just wait until I get the triangle out again. <laughs> In the present, Peter says that Derek was obsessed with this constant fear. See, he gets so personal for this story. He does. When he talks about it, isn't like a de detached observer. Yeah. It's not cold and calculated like we normally see Peter. Very and Peter-like. 
In the past, Peter sits with Derek at lunch. Hey, where they're eating right there, that's the back of our stages. Yeah, it is. I hung out there between scenes when we were extras for... Yeah, it's really interesting to see. I mean, not the first or last time we'll make this comparison, but Peter's basically like pulling a Kate, just grown person hanging out with teenagers in BD, like it's not inappropriate. And Derek does comment on it in the episode where he's like, I feel like I could get you banned because you're way too old to be here. Right. Derek asks what Peter is doing there. Peter says that he's just looking out for his favorite nephew. That's almost word for word what Scar says to Simba in The Lion King. He loves that movie. Red flag. <laughs> he's like, I can really relate to Scar. Okay, all right. That's, oh is, is that what you took from that movie? <laughs> Peter tells Derek that Paige is perfect for him, and perfect combinations are rare in an imperfect world. Meanwhile, he eats a Reese's cup. Wow. Flawless. I mean, a Reese's cup is a perfect combination in an imperfect world. That is true. Styles is like, I just really love what you're saying there. <laughs> Big fan. Despite telling Cora and Styles in the present that he told Derek not to do it, Peter in the past encourages Derek to turn page. Derek doesn't really say much here. I feel like this is actually just Peter's internal monologue. Like, what if the worst happens? If she finds out, she'll reject me. Absolutely. Look. If I stick with the narrative that this is actually Derek's story and it is actually how his eyes turn blue, then in order to account for Peter's behavior, I would think this is the awakening of a sociopath, right? So Peter is starting to sort of test his bubble, his limits of like what he can get away with. And because he's a sociopath who doesn't care for other people, he's using Derek as a test subject. So he is saying all of these things to Derek. What if she rejects you? What if she leaves you? Like you should bite her. Then you could be together, you know? And he's the one that's like, it could be Ennis. You know, your mom will never do it, but this is how we can make it happen. And because I, your favorite uncle, love and care about you so much, I'll make it happen. But there is the argument that because of the difference in what Peter's saying in the story and what Peter's doing in the flashbacks. I mean, you could just be accounting for the fact that Peter is trying to tell the story around all the ways that he made this story and the ending happen. But he was the architect of this. Right. You could argue that this is sort of Peter's first foray into something of that nature, not with the intention of killing her, because I don't think he could know that her body would reject the bite, but simply with the intention of convincing someone to do a thing, not because it benefits him in any way, but because it's interesting. Yes. And he's bored. Although I do think what we have seen from him in the present so far in the in the last few seasons, we don't see that much of him manipulating people for fun. We see him manipulating people for personal gain. Like you can see a very clear through line of like, I killed Laura because I wanted to be an alpha and be healed. I put my fist through Derek's chest because he was trying to stop me. And he kept leaving spirals just to let me know he was going to kill me as soon as he figured out it was me. We don't really see a lot of Peter doing things just because. I I feel like there are a lot of similarities between Peter and Kate, but I think that's a little more of something we see Kate do. Sometimes we see her do things with specific ends, and sometimes not so much. Up until this point, at least, in the story, I feel like we've mainly seen him do bad things to get to a specific self-serving goal 
So if that is the case, this would be the first time, not just in his timeline, but for us as audience members, that we've seen him do something that is morally questionable, but also doesn't really serve a purpose to him personally. Right. Peter even presents a plan. Peter says Derek's mother would never turn page, so that's not an option. One of the visiting alphas, on the other hand. It's weird how he says your mother. She's his sister. Right? I think it's a strange thing to say. It is. So Peter's pitch to Derek is just slightly extended in the script. He says, one little bite and she never gets sick again. She stays younger, more beautiful. She's faster, stronger. Think of the world you're bringing her into by being with her. There's a dead body around every corner in this town. Think how she'll be able to protect herself. Derek, the bite is a gift. Where have we heard that before? In an underground area of the preserve, still in that same time frame seven years ago, Gerard and Chris found a druid symbol on the subterranean root structure of a tree. That was a very cool set. It was very uh, Texas Chainsaw. The symbol is also the logo of a local bank. There's sacrificial blood on the tree, too. Chris has a theory that they're in a nematon a tree that's functioned as a sacred meeting place for ancient Celtic Druids. They believed it represented the center of the universe, and harming the tree led to fires, plagues, strife, death, and destruction. And chaos and pain. A little early for that, but we'll get there. In the present, Allison asks how Chris knew all of that. He's a nerd. Nerd. And <laughs> alert. The scene's actually extended in the original script. Allison says, Nematon, and Gerard nods while... They take in the story. Allison says, where is it? Can we find it? Gerard says, it's near the distillery, if the, that's still standing. The root cellar underneath was buried a long time ago, but the trees around it were enormous. The entrance is hidden, but you should be able to find it with a little effort. And then she asks, would my dad know? And Gerard says, why don't you ask him yourself? Both he and Scott notice her hesitation. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Obviously, that comes into play later. Gerard says, it's important to know one's enemy. But you didn't know any of that shit, sounds like. He had to tell you, it's important for your son to know thy enemy. <laughs> summarize right. it for you. Spartan's version. Gerard explains that the older wolves had relationships with druids and called them emissaries. It all traces back to the myth of Lycaon. In the story, some Greeks thought they owed their existence to Prometheus instead of Zeus and took names to honor the Titans instead of the gods like Deucalion, son of Prometheus. Lycaon challenged the gods, even going so far as to invite Zeus to a banquet and try to serve him human flesh. Gerard shows an illustration of this story. It uh, was pretty obvious. Aw, oh, crap, he saw through it. What tipped you off? It's an arm, buddy. <laughs> I loved that illustration. Where it's just yeah. a stack of legs. <laughs> <laughs> you said you like wings. Chicken wings. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> In the original script, Gerard also describes emissaries like this. They're a kind of human representative for the pack, like a mafia consigliere. Zeus punished Lycaon and his sons by turning them into wolves. The lesser known part of the story is that Lycaon turned to the druids to try and change back to human. The druids were believed to be able to shapeshift. They couldn't cure Lycaon and his children, but they could teach them to shapeshift back and forth. The druids became their trusted advisors. Wait, so does this mean that the Olympians are real in Teen Wolf canon? Maybe. That sounds like how they're putting it. I'll chat, Percy Jackson, where you at? Cora <laughs> <laughs> explains emissaries to Styles too. They're secret, sometimes even to the rest of the pack. She and Derek didn't know that Deaton was Talia's emissary, nor did they know about Morel, who is now the emissary to the Alpha Pack. Styles is stunned and can't believe they didn't tell him this. 
he shared intimate information with her. I like that there's at least a small lantern on the overall lack of communication between the characters. They really just need like a group thread of like, okay, so, you know, twins are evil. They're out. The alpha pack and Lydia's like, okay, got it. Thumbs up to that information. <laughs> but then Derek would be like, Styles, if you send one more meme of Star Wars, I'm gonna delete this thread. I'm gonna block this. That's what's going to. Ha- Is that what you want? Let me do that. I will do it. Cora asked if Miss Morell gave him good advice. Styles says she did. Peter says Deaton used to do the same for Talia. In the past, Talia, Deaton, and Ducalian discussed Ducalian's plan to extend an olive branch to Gerard. Deaton asks if Deucalion knows the story of the scorpion and the frog. And everyone loves this story. In the original script, Talia suggests to Deucalion, if you want someone who will listen, why not go to his son, Chris? At least his moral compass seems to be pointed somewhere near the right direction. This is really interesting because it means that Chris has been a standout in his own family for a while as far as his moral compass and following the code and not being a psychopath. This kind of shows not only has that been the case for a while, right, because this is a flashback, but that it is enough so that outsiders know about it, including werewolves who the hunters see as enemies. I just think that's really interesting. Yeah. Deucalion says he has a feeling he's about to hear it because for some reason he's never heard it before. Deucalion's attitude toward Deaton in the past is my attitude toward Deucalion in the present, which is like, do you know what a metronome does? (laughs) You're about to tell me, aren't you? In a really like menacing way. (laughs) Yeah. In the story, a scorpion asks a frog to carry him across a river. The frog asks, how do I know you won't sting me? The scorpion says that they both drown. So the frog carries the scorpion, but halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog asks why. Because I'm a f- scorpion. Nailed it. In the story, what the scorpion actually says is, it's in my nature. Okay, the scorpion's definitely drawn in this scenario, except like in that version, the scorpion sends his children on the frog and then uses their body to like jump across the <laughs> river to <his> own safety. <laughs> yep, spot on. Also in the past, Paige walks alone in the high school at night, hearing a sound. She asks if it's Derek, whom she was supposed to meet there. It was Slappy's first night at work. (laughs) It was a long, hard road. Yes, it was. We miss you, Slappy. R.I.P. But it wasn't Derek in the school. It was Ennis. I feel like Peter would do a better job than Derek at convincing an alpha to turn someone, especially a teenager. Who clearly doesn't want to be turned. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we get like a lot of disdain from the alpha pack, especially like Kali being like, oh, look, he's turning teenagers and hanging out with teenagers. So it doesn't seem like it's common practice to go around turning teenagers for your pack. So it seems like it would need like some convincing. Yeah. And I, I feel like the implication in the episode is that it's Derek's story, but Peter was really the engine of all of it. Like it was his idea. He convinced Ennis because Derek probably wasn't going to do so. Certainly not successfully if he did it at all. In the present, Cora asks, why would you choose Ennis? She asks, why would you? As in Peter. Mm -hmm. I think she's definitely starting to see through his narrative. But it's also interesting to me, you know, back to being contrarian with this is actually a story about Derek. I think that it does ring true in the narrative that we're actually seeing, not just the one we're hearing, yeah, Peter is there as well. So I think Peter talked Derek into all of this, again, said, I'm going to be a good uncle and 
be cool and I'm going to go talk to Ennis. Meanwhile, I think Peter would think that that would ingratiate himself with Ennis, who is an alpha that might have some power. And then Peter would definitely want to be on site to see his handiwork, right? So he would tell Derek, wait here, you know, Ennis is going to come in, he's going to deal with it, like, it'll be fine. But then Derek changes his mind because he hears her screaming, obviously, it's like super horrific and traumatizing. Then Peter kind of sees what he hath wrought and... (laughs) leaves and then Derek has to kind of clean up the mess of like what we'll see later with this the way this is done is so interesting because I can definitely see multiple options on the table right for how this is actually like the truth of this yeah I don't think the writer's intention was that it was Peter's story especially because we do see things that Peter isn't narrating and same with Gerard. Right. I just like it better <laughs> from, yeah. from, a, no, it's from a character perspective a... because of, you know, everything we've mm-hmm. talked about with Peter not being emotional about things. And I also just like the idea of a character telling a story about ostensibly someone else's trauma when it's really theirs, but just that's the right. one piece of information they're not willing to share. Yeah, correct. The most right. crucial detail, which is like, this is my trauma, but I can't right. own it. And I just find that a correct. really fascinating idea. It's a good one. Yeah. Peter says Ennis needed a new pack member. Paige was young and strong, and doing a favor for Derek would mean being in Talia's good graces. Or, you know, doing a favor for her brother. Accurate. So this scene isn't different, but uh, I do think that this line of business is interesting from this original script. What happened? Did he turn her? Peter says, almost. His back to them, they don't see the change in Peter's expression. An unfamiliar look for him. Regret. The other thing is you have to think about actor choice, right? So maybe what we're sort of calling emotion as Peter is telling the story, which he normally doesn't show for anyone but himself, which would be an argument in favor of it being his story. Maybe what they were asking Ian Bowen to do is to sort of tell this story like maybe it's one of the few things in life that Peter regrets. And that that might be where the emotion comes from that he isn't okay with. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. he his actions led to the death of someone. Um, and maybe this is the first time that something like this happens and you know it clearly peter takes a hard right down the the path of being you know a not nice person it, he clearly doesn't learn anything from it but mm-hmm. maybe he does regret it just a little and that's that's those little glean like little moments you see where he's like her name was page or in this instance where he looks a little regretful mm-hmm. I, you can definitely factor in actor choice although I do think there's a little bit of a confluence this is our our teen wolf vocabulary word there's a little bit of confluence that goes beyond delivery because some of the visual storytelling too there are several shots because it's raining outside of light passing through the window and reflecting the rain on Peter's face so that there's like water dripping down it it's a visual that recalls the look of crying without a character actually letting themselves cry and obviously that that's a decision on the part of the director and editor not the actor so I think 
it, it did kind of end up being a confluence of, of different contributions, the sum of which create kind of a picture of emotion from the, the score to the visual storytelling to the performance to the word choice that yeah. altogether it suggested something that maybe none of the individual parts were specifically engineered to suggest, but the sum total of it right. does kind of create a couple different ways to interpret the sequence of events. Yeah, it's like intention's Absolutely. great, but it's like whatever you get in the end is the thing, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. Styles asked whether Derek remembers it was Ennis. Peter says that if he does, he keeps it to himself. Or because he didn't know it was Ennis. That could I mean, be an it, interesting It was very traumatic and it was dark. I, you know, maybe he truly didn't know. Yeah. yeah. The dialogue is slightly different in the original script. Peter says if he does, he keeps it to himself. Styles says like everything else. Cora says what happened next. Peter says, I know he saw her. I think that's really interesting. Bitter much, Styles? Bitter. I want to be the special someone that Derek shares his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> we know, Styles. We know. In the past, Ennis chased Paige, who was bloody and crawling away from him. Was he trying to murder her? I mean, I feel like it would have been made very clear to him that that was not the purpose of the situation. Like, yeah, I don't yeah, think he just I, I, her I agree. and run off. That's actually what I found really confusing about the scene because it feels like an attempted murder. Like he's stalking after her, right. mm -hmm. but it's like, girl, you already got the job done. Like you bit her. What are you trying to do now? You know what I mean? Like, right. Is he like, just Wait, like, let me put a bandage on it. Like, I don't, <laughs> what are you trying to do? Right. I, I don't understand. Right. Why is he like galumphing after her yeah. trying to grab her as she's crawling away? I, I sincerely don't understand what was happening here. Oh, I've got Neosporin for you. Hold on. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you already did the thing. Like she's already bitten. Why are you trying to drag her back? I'm so, I just don't understand. Right. Like shouldn't it have just been like chomp and then right. romp, run away. Well, like, <laughs> I mean, chomp do you and chomp and romp? Love a good chomp and romp. <laughs> Netflix and um, chill. Do you think yeah. that uh <laughs> do you think that maybe every not every alpha alpha, but like there are alphas who have different versions of their initiation and maybe some are more medical, like Derek is like, okay, cool, you want to be in the pack. I'm just gonna have or you know, some are more ceremonial. And then some are more, you know, tra traumatizing, or maybe those alphas are just more sadistic. And that is how Ennis turns people. That's just what it looks like. It's possible. I, I don't know. It doesn't really clarify in the script. It just says, it's Peter who cowers in the shadows of the dark corner, watching Paige crawl across the tile floor, trying to get away from Ennis. Still, Peter does nothing even as Derek charges blindly in, from around the hall, launching up to attack. In a slams, Derek against the wall and tosses him to the floor. As Derek tumbles past, Peter pulls further back into the shadows, trying not to be seen. Pinned to the floor, Derek struggles against his powerful hands, but the alpha simply turns the boy's head to show him what's already been done. 
He releases Derek, leaving him lying on the floor, leaving him there to see Paige gasp and tear at the horrifying fight in her side. And then he just leaves. So there's not a big fight. It just says like he's she's crawling away and he's after her, but it doesn't say like what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah. I I, right. I have a he's question. Bitter. And like this just now occurred to me. It didn't occur to me when I was watching it, but like is it strange that he doesn't know who, like, does he know who Derek is and that he's doing this for Derek? Because if so, it seems strange that he wouldn't be like, what are you mad about? <laughs> like, isn't this, isn't this the thing that you wanted? Yeah. Especially if, as Peter theorized, part of the point was to make Derek happy to get in good with Talia. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. He's it, working as a hit well, man, and sometimes people would have regrets about it, but the job's already done, so you just gotta like move on with your life. Right. But right. They, usually with a hitman, they pay you as opposed to like the entire point is to please someone so that you get in good with them. See, right. I, I have two, I'm really reaching here, but I have two theories on that. One is that werewolf packs protect the children at all costs. So any kind of formal meetings, unless you're of a certain age, you would not ever be involved in, right? Like you said, Talia probably keeps her children away from like the more political machinations of a, of a pack. Mm -hmm. um, so Ennis might not know what Derek looks like, first of all, for obvious reasons, because Derek's a minor werewolf. If Peter, in fact, put all of this emotion and set it all up he might have been the one to go to Ennis and explain the situation Ennis would then agree and show up to do it knowing kind of who he's doing it for but not knowing that this like scrappy teenage werewolf coming at him is the guy that Peter told him you know you see what I'm saying like in the mm -hmm. dark and in a scuffle like I don't know if Ennis would put two and two together like this is Derek Hale maybe he's just like just kind of sees a shape coming at him and puts it down yeah is it weird that he specifically holds his face to make him watch it i think that i mean he that implies he knows who he is yeah. and he knows right he knows that he knows right who Paige is. i mean that all that implies that he has all the information about who is who what the relationship right. or is. is the pause just him being like, hold still, let me like push myself up to standing using your head. <laughs> I kind of like that about I like because yeah, I like I like that better because I wasn't even saying this as like part of the theory or anything. I was just like, I don't really understand what Ennis is doing here. Like, what's going up? What's going on in that noggin, buddy? Do you know yeah, who this kid is? If you do not know, sense. why are you making him watch? If you do know, like why isn't you your goal to more? get in yeah isn't your goal to get in good with talia and is this really what you think is gonna do it having met that woman right like it just really no matter how you spin it i'm like what are you doing brother like what are you trying to accomplish here truly yeah i i think right. unfortunately this is an instance that's similar to um monologuing weather where we thought it was <laughs> cool in the moment yeah type of thing and, and granted this was in the script so this wasn't a, a thing done on set but it's like you know it's like we're writing a scene that's thrilling and exciting and scary and it's like but that doesn't really work with intention of characters yeah and i think they chose thrilling exciting and scary and scary over 
aligns with what over overlining up with what they say in the actual script or like what characters want to happen and all that unfortunately i think that's what it is otherwise none of this makes sense at all to have characters be like hey tit for tat and then it's like oh i'm just gonna stomp all over everything like what why why are you doing that he said maybe it was something that like more he could hold over her later that's an interesting take that's that's cool yeah that's interesting right especially if you're not supposed to turn someone against their will like if that's in a if that's just like good werewolf etiquette then he could hold over talia later that like hey well your son made me turn this girl against her will Mm -hmm. and it happened in your territory wouldn't that lead more credence to uh that it's actually peter he's holding down and making watch because he's like i now have something on you which means i have something on talia you know what i mean where and so it's like something ennis could use like you were saying it's something that could be held over them i think it could work still for peter yeah yeah Derek rushed in to try to save Paige, but ennis just subdued him Meanwhile, Gerard continues his story by saying that he wasn't surprised when Deaton came to arrange a meeting with Duke Halion because a sinister person who wants to be your enemy will first try to become your friend. Man, that dude can enunciate. Yes, he can. Even with black blood all up in his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Gerard brings up the Sanskrit fable of the scorpion and the turtle, which Scott recognizes. So Scott knew it, but Duke Halion didn't. I love that for Scott, actually. Yeah. I could just assume that Dean had already yeah, told I'm him actually that. real proud, real proud of our puppy. Yeah. Oh, I, I actually, I could see that, that, that Deaton brings up that story a lot. And so, and so Scott's heard it from him. Well, what I don't you mind didn't, that headcanon. What we didn't see in 3A when he's doing like the one arm pushups and he throws down Call of the Wild on top of a stack of books is right next to that stack was old Sanskrit scrolls as well. So he, he's been doing a lot of reading. Although, it, it still is to his credit that he would make the connection because if Deaton told him, he probably told him the story of the scorpion and the frog because that's the version we hear that's true. Deaton tell Deucalion. Very true. Gerard asks how the scorpion explains his behavior. Scott answers, I didn't get that far in the story. <laughs> Don't spoil it. <laughs> In the past, Gerard and his people meet with Deucalion and his pack at the abandoned distillery. Gerard gives a speech about the metaphorical significance of them meeting at a distillery. Can't we just skip that get to the murder? (laughs) So much monologuing. Yes. Gerard releases a gas. And he did it to his own guys, too. He did. Messed up. What kind of gas, though, was it that's poisonous to werewolves and humans? I don't know. Well, isn't Akonai in certain forms also poisonous to humans? I mean, he could technically poison. I know it is in when ingested. Forms, I, I don't. Like. I don't. I don't know if I don't know if there's actually any research on whether like a gas form of aconite would be toxic to humans because right. like why would people be doing that? But definitely, definitely, if ingested by humans, it's toxic. I know that. Right. So I maybe. mean, look, I don't know why do people eat Tide Pods, but this is the world right. we live in. So <laughs> I want to know if aconite is poisonous if inhaled. <laughs> Jar takes out a homemade spiked mace. Oh, this prop. It's. Clever of Gerard 
to make it look like claws though actually the original script said that he used the claws of fallen wolves to make it which is just devastating yeah wow that makes I, I more sense about that i was like what if he pulled like what if he ripped off claw um, and like glued them on because <clears throat> ennis ennis says in that earlier scene that they they removed his mm-hmm. beta's claws after oh, he was killed. right so yeah. that, that actually does connect perfectly but it, it also connects to will's theory that in season one victoria was wearing a coat made of a werewolf pelt yeah because it would support the 100 especially these like older werewolf families would like do things with the remains of the werewolves just like as yeah. an extra form of disrespect yeah good on them for using Head every part of the werewolf accepted animal hunting using <laughs> <laughs> every part of the werewolf oh go to timeout that is <laughs> you're done go sit in the corner in the fight gerard is indiscriminate in using the weapon Look, I'm going to be really honest. This entire scene does a great job at making me feel really bad for Deucalion. Like, thanks. I hate it. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to feel sorry for him. I feel that. But it's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In the present, Styles asks if Paige turned. Peter explains she didn't, that the bite didn't take. Sorry, but again, this whole bit feels very emotional on Peter's end. Yes, it does. Also, this is the same Mozart piece they used during the murder of the Archbishop in Primal Fear. Oh, yeah. I've seen that movie way too many times. That's and cool. the imagery of the rain coming down Peter's face. Ugh. Yeah. And of course, Ian slays it. And the rain was probably his idea. Should it, shouldn't it be raining? It shouldn't be just like, you know, like I'm crying, but I'm not crying. Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know who is crying? Styles. Oh, yeah. He's so Aww. sad for Derek. The description here is Cora approaches Peter, noticing a change in tone to his voice, a reluctance to look her or Styles in the eye. Yeah, I feel I really feel like at this point it could go either way, right? Like it could be he's he's ashamed of what he did, or he did it, or or he like he is the person in the story and he's like too overcome to look them directly in the eye because he's afraid they'll see that. Mm-hmm. so i don't know it's well clearly the uh, eyes are the windows to the soul and that goes double for werewolves yes true 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 speaking of which in the past Gerard finishes the fight by jabbing two arrows into killian's eyes why are there sparks because those are the explosive arrows they use to blind wolves and this is what happened when you put them in eyeballs which, again, horrifying. Meanwhile, Derek holds a dying page in the Nemeton where Chris and Gerard were earlier. Shouldn't I be in a hospital, you dick? <laughs> I mean, like, arguably, could a hospital help her if she's rejecting the bite? But the point still stands. Yeah. I mean, like, she, might not, on... she might not know whether right. the yeah. hospital could help. I, she knows something's True. off, but she doesn't know, right. like, the deets. Right. Yeah. She's like, I feel like I'm dying, but now you've brought me to this tree and I'm just really confused. But Which, like, by the way, I don't know. I guess I'll die. Why does he do that? Maybe Derek found it playing in the woods as a kid and it's a safe space for him because it's den like, it's very enclosed and 
that's the first place he thought to take her that felt safe to him. Yeah. I, I mean, I would have liked to know about that. That's exactly the kind of shit, the kind of like right. backstory shit that I love. Indeed, that I have I a headcanon like, that baby up, Derek yes. like built a little den to impress his future mate when he was like playing oh. the woods as a small wolfle. The uh, the real reason he takes her there is because we had to build that set, and to build a set, you have to go to it multiple times. So that is <laughs> well, I mean, that's the plays, production reason. Yeah, I feel it like plays it's into the plot. Yeah, now the Nebaton's going to be super relevant, ongoing in the story, so that's why it happens yeah. here. There you but go. I would right. have liked right. just some kind of like, like no, how Cora like at the beginning, yeah. Cora says they hid there for two days and she's talking about that same like root cellar yeah. area. Yeah. So I, I feel like right. it should have right. been like they hid there for two days because we've always felt safe there. Like literally right. that small right. bit would have been really helpful. Right. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. In contextualizing. Right. Yeah. I mean, clearly Derek knows, uh, knows about it. So, you know, yeah, he goes there. Yeah. But yeah. yes, I love, I love little, like, I I do a ton of character exposition in my head all the time as I'm mm -hmm. watching, which can be dangerous when you're watching something and then they contradict your headcanon and you're like, wait a second. No, that's not right. That's canon. And you're like, no, it's not. That's no, not. It's your headcanon. <laughs> yeah. Paige explains she knew about Derek. Yeah, you're real bad at hiding your secret, Derek. Yeah, and your brother grows all that hair when he plays basketball. Throwback. <laughs> Derek can't believe she still liked him. And she says she loved him. I had a really great week and a half with you. Really, really amazing. <laughs> Paige begs Derek to stop the pain, and he puts her out of her misery. How does he actually kill her? How does he actually kill her? Claws right. in her neck and her spinal right. cord, like, like that. Just... Yeah, yeah. In yeah. the script, it just says like you can hear like his claws coming out. Mm -mm. Right. In the present, Peter recalls taking her body and leaving it where it would be found. Another in a long line of Beacon Hill's animal attacks. As for Derek, he says, taking an instant life takes a bit of your soul. Have you heard of the term Horcrux? Yes. Do you think that? Peter cried as he carried her lifeless body. Like, do you think he was just a little bit sorry that his scheming had gotten out of hand? Like, if we're going with my theory about this, like, do you think this was the, the real one, basically? <laughs> of the, right, yeah. Like, this was kind of the making of the Peter we see in, in season one, and I like to have this headcanon that Talia had a pretty good idea of what had actually happened, and that this was the moment that she started watching him a little a little closer like a little more from that moment on and obviously until the fire I, I just like to think that you know she kind of she was like I got your number little brother and I'm watching I think so from the script it says Derek squeezes his eyes shut under the sound of his claws unsheathing and then it says without even seeming to realize it Peter thumbs the tips of his own fingers that's see that a that literal nail theory in the car i mean that's it that that, I mean, that visual like, i mean granted it's not in the it's not oh. in the episode so it's not canon i but but my god i mean that's what that is that is that's that's like that, sense memory it's like muscle yeah memory. It's, it's that thing whenever someone right. says no there's another and then they cut to someone whoever they cut to is the other like yeah. that is the right. thing that is visual storytelling and so 
Right. Alyssa is 100% right. correct. This had that one moment been in the script, that's what that is. I mean, there's there, I refuse to believe that's not what Jeff and the other writers were thinking. I, I wonder if that was like the unconscious writer, you know, yeah, where you Jeff like talks about look that all back the time. on something you've written and you're like, oh shit, like I wasn't consciously writing toward this, but maybe part of me was. And they cut these bits because they were like, that would be a bridge too far. And that would undercut what we're actually trying to say happened. But on some level, they were writing to this because that feels very like, that feels very like sense memory-ish, that line. Yeah, it is. No one, that that doesn't happen in stories or in visual stories, like where character A did a thing with their hand and then character B looks at their hand as if they did it. Yeah. Because that's not how that works. And, unless it's like a mind meld thing. Yes, unless that, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yes, unless yeah. we were Spock mind melding with people and all that. We're like, oh, I felt like I was there. It's like, yeah. no, no, that's not what's happening. It's someone telling a story. It's like, oh my God, I ate spaghetti once. Oh my God, I feel like I ate it and like was doing it myself. <laughs> no, that's not how this works. You know, I mean, that's just the visual storytelling of the things that were cut from this script. 100% confirmed Calista's theory is that this was Peter's story. He's just not telling it about himself because he's ashamed. And right. But then at the same time, that does not line up with what happens next in the remaining episodes and all that. Um, but right. that's, that's what this was. And taking an innocent life turns beta yellow eyes blue like Peter's. I actually wonder, we talked about not knowing exactly the rules for this. I wonder if Derek's eyes could have turned because he felt responsible for the deaths of his family members. So, like, that came later. Because, like you said, we don't actually have anything about, like, Cora saying, like, she remembers when his eyes turned blue. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I mean, Derek does actually take her life, which arguably would change his eyes blue. But I like that idea that that what if what if feeling responsible for a death like what if it's also intention that could change your eyes because then maybe peter's eyes turned blue during this time because he felt responsible like that would be an interesting take that Mm -hmm. Derek's eyes turned blue because he actually killed her but peter's eyes turned blue because he knew that he was the reason she was dead yeah and that take on it could also explain why victoria's eyes are yellow at the end of or toward the end of season two Mm -hmm. because we talked about that a little bit you know where we were like is it weird that our eyes are yellow like this is the person who told a group of hunters find him kill him cut him in half really not caring at all whether this werewolf had actually killed a person yeah. or not right you know so it's like those eyes should not be yellow but if she was like oh i've just always done what needed to be done i've i've never taken an innocent life if she sincerely believed right. that then our interpretation of it could explain why her eyes were yellow yeah right right yeah interesting in the past Deaton examines Deucalion's eyes and says that his eyes will heal physically, but his sight will remain damaged. When Deaton leaves the room, Deucalion's beta Marco attacks him. Deucalion kills Marco and subsumes his power. I'm sorry, but Deucalion looks like Judge Doom here, and I don't (laughs) care over that. 
I totally yeah. didn't see it the first time I watched it, but then you made that little like meme or whatever, and I was like, oh my god, he does look like Judge Doom. And he talks like this. <laughs> I am the alpha of alphas. So not a drama. Yeah. God, I love that movie. Great movie. In the present, Scott and Allison are shocked to learn that Deucalion isn't blind as a wolf. Allison wonders whether they could find a way to use that against Deucalion. Gerard is too focused on Scott, like a weirdo. Like Papa needs another man. hit. Gerard says he thinks about Scott sometimes, so a great follow-up to that. Gerard thinks about what he did to get the bite and cure his cancer. He wonders when it became his nature to assume things couldn't be asked for and had to be taken. Earth is my guess. I think you're right. Scott says he doesn't believe Gerard. The whole time Gerard was telling the story, his heartbeat didn't go up or down at all. He thinks Gerard is just a really good liar. I love smart Scott. Me too. Especially because we don't see him very often when he comes out. It's just like, yeah, there you are. We're like, yeah, we missed you, buddy. Right? We couldn't be like this all the time, Scott. Come on, brain. Think of things. <laughs> and if Gerard did lie and, and it gets someone hurt, Scott says he'll come back and take more than Gerard's pain. That was a good line, Scott. Yeah, boy. Uh, too bad it's all bluff. Eh, we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> Meanwhile, having heard Peter's story, Cora tries to get Styles to explain why he has a look on his face that makes Cora want to punch him. Because it's emotional and Cora doesn't do emotions. It's a hell thing. Styles says they've been reading Heart of Darkness in English class and learning about the concept of the unreliable narrator. He thinks Peter is one. From the script, there's an extra bit here. So Styles says, so I don't think we got the whole story. There's something else there, something important. That whole bit about there being something important there, we don't have in the actual hmm. scene on screen. Cool. But we never actually get to figure out what that is. Cora asks whether Styles is going to ask Derek about the girl he fell in love with and then killed. Styles says he will if he has to. In the past, Derek lets his mother see his newly blue eyes for the first time, and she consoles him. Ah, those eyes look great. This is a really beautiful moment between Derek and his mom like yeah. I is. think it this is one of the few glimpses we see of Talia being a mom and not just an alpha yeah in the present we see Derek's face as cello music plays in the background this is actually just the music that plays in Derek's head all the time <laughs> you know it is now I want a YouTube video of the workout scene from season one but with sad cello music in the background Aww. yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We'll get on that. It's just like pumping the push ups, but like what you're hearing is just like two cellos. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Dueling cellos. Good. At the abandoned distillery, Derek stares at the spiral Ennis created, representing vengeance. But Derek wasn't present for any of that stuff, right? Like he wouldn't know about the significance of it being there other than the fact that it's a spiral. Right. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Visionary. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week.
But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Taking an innocent life takes something from you as well. A bit of your soul darkening it, dimming the once brilliant golden yellow to a cold steel blue like mine. Right, Wolfies. Now let's jump over to our interview with Betsy Graham, one of the organizers of the upcoming HowlerCon Teen Wolf convention. Let's have a listen. Have you been part of any other fandoms besides Teen Wolf? Um, so probably Harry Potter would be the big one. I am an admin for Tom Felton's official fan site. Oh, wow. Uh, so nice. I've worked with him cool. for um, a lot of years, a dozen, 12, something like that, 12, 13. Oh. And so I've gotten to do a lot of really, really cool things through that fandom because of that. So, yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's awesome. How did Teen Wolf come into your life? I started watching Teen Wolf, I think, before the second season. And I didn't watch the first season, and I'm not really even sure why. But I started watching it, and I just loved it. So, I I mean, it just, it became very quick after that. And then um, I met Melissa Ponzio not terribly long after I started watching it. I, I talked to her on Twitter a few times, and then we met in person, and we kind of got on like a house on fire. Nice. And we found out at the very first event, her daughter and her daughter, Jesse and I are sorority sisters. <laughs> so, wow. so okay. It was just this weird, like, oh my gosh, this should have happened. And so that's how I got into the fandom. Who is your favorite Teen Wolf character? Oh, I don't know that it's fair to ask about one. <laughs> I mean, I love Styles. Who doesn't? But I, I think my favorite is probably Melissa McCall. I feel like she's the heart of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, she's this amazing, hardworking, you know, single mother. And we actually see this parent getting to do things. We watch her struggle paying the bills. We watch her struggle, you know, to be this really crazy nurse trying to, trying to deal with the oath that she took to do, you know, to, to be a nurse and then try to cover up her son who she loves and everything. And I just, I love that we get to see that little glimpse into her dating world and even her past with her ex-husband. And I just, I think that she's the heart of this show. I think I, so I just love her and it does. I mean, it absolutely helps that Melissa is just a most stellar human being. (laughs) She's so lovely. Yeah, she is. She is amazing. So that helps. How did HowlerCon come into existence? So I'd been to several conventions before, and I'd even been to a couple of small ones. And I wanted to do a a Teen Wolf convention just for Teen Wolf. But I wanted to do one in Atlanta because I'm... I lived in Georgia at the time. I'm in the South. And so I wanted to do one, but I was super busy at the time and couldn't work it into a schedule. And then Amy was having the same kind of feelings at the same time that she wanted to plan something in the Northeast where she is. So when we finally met in person and we kind of started being friends, she mentioned that she wanted to do a con. And and so I said, well, you know, I'd already done some legwork on how to start one. If you want any help, if you know, let me know. And so about the third email that was as long as my arm, she said, <laughs> she said, you know, would you like to just partner with this? <laughs> and so it just really worked out for us that, you know, that's how we, we both kind of wanted one. And then we went from there. And so 
it was quite an experience the first year getting it off the ground and, and going. But after that, it's done really well. So. That's amazing. I cannot fathom all of the things that have to go into something like that. I, I Same. No. I mean, my daily planner is enough for me. Like, I, I, by the end of that, I'm like, Whoo, this is rough, you know? So I can't even imagine the logistics of a convention with people and celebrities and oh my god my hat is off to you for this <laughs> thank you i will be honest the first year we lost our butts <laughs> um we lost quite a bit of, of uh, we we were in the hole quite a bit the first year and so um Thankfully, the second year and the third year, and then again, one last howler, we did really well. Um, and the events sold out, and we knew a little bit more about what we could expect and how much we could spend. And so we have been able to break even every year uh, other than that. But, I mean, I could lose my home. I could lose everything I have because if this conventions go south. I mean, I do have an LLC, which helps me and protects us, but it's super scary when you're like, Oh gosh, how are we going to pay this, you know, $30,000 bill to the hotel? <laughs> you know, how are we going to pay this guest their fee? So that part I would say is the most nerve wracking to me. It's not knowing, are we going to make it? Are we not? Am I going to be paying on this con till I'm 75? <laughs> oh, God, I can imagine. So, yeah, that part is scary. You have nerves of steel, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. uh, you say that. My friends say that I'm just a glutton for punishment. <laughs> if that had been me after that first year, I would have just disappeared. Like, what happened to when Will? They... I don't know. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. He just evaporated right through the walls. There was a point in the first event. I was in the green room with Lyndon and Orny and Melissa and... Lyndon and Orton, they were late. They were on the couch. And Lyndon, he was like, this is going really well, right? And the con itself went extremely well. I couldn't have asked for it to be better that way. But I was still, I knew at that point we were not going to make our money. I just, I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and I do not have a poker face. What I'm oh. thinking, it's here on my bed. And I'm trying so hard not to, it's not their fault that our con's not making money. And Orny was like, why, you know, you don't think it's going well? And I was like, no, it's it's going well. And Lyndon just got this frown on his face. And he, he goes, what's going on? And I said, we're just, you know, it's fine. <laughs> and he said, you're not going to make your money. And I said, no, we're not. And he looked at Melissa and he said, did you know that? And Melissa, you know, she's like, it's all right. Don't worry. We're, we're going to take care of it. It's fine. <laughs> so, but they were so concerned. And then we had our charity auction and then they all three and some, and a couple of the other guests donated their time for things to be auctioned off in the auction that helped us a little bit with with some of the money and I mean I ran out of the auction and I mean ran to the back part of the hotel into the back area and I was leaned over like hands on my knees just uh, everything from the weekend had just come out and I am just sobbing uncontrollably oh. and all of a sudden the the director of catering for the hotel that's been helping us all weekend he comes running out of his office and I'm like I'm sorry I'm fine I swear I'm fine because <laughs> I am just absolutely losing it behind the and near his office and you know I mean while we decided to do another one after that 
I'm really not sure. But, you know, it worked out really well. The second one made its money and what we lost the first year. So it wasn't completely dire, but it is is scary. (laughs) That is a lot of investment of time, money, energy, stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, (laughs) What is it about Teen Wolf in particular? that inspired your fandom so much that you were willing to put so much of yourself into it stupidity no (laughs) no I'm I'm kidding um you know honestly I feel like these characters are very very relatable they um especially in the beginning I feel like yes there was the supernatural aspect that we were that the rest of us don't have but all the other issues that they were going through you know the awkwardness, the loneliness, the the alcoholism, the losing a parent or, you know, the you know, divorce and struggling to pay your bills. And all those things are things that we all, that's what we deal with on a regular basis anyway. I felt like it was very real life in those issues, you know, fitting in. And I feel like that that's why I feel like this show kept going like it did because it didn't turn it. It's more to than just a supernatural show to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Amy and I, decided to do Howler, we had two goals in mind. And one of them, one of them we knew we wanted to do was that we wanted to, our conventions to have a charitable aspect. And we have, we've to, our fans through charity auctions at our events, we've raised over $50,000 for charity. Wow. Um, and which is amazing. And then the other aspect was that we wanted it to be a safe space. And we wanted anyone in the fandom to be able to come and spend their weekend and th- we wanted them to be comfortable to be who they wanted to be in that moment. And I feel like that we've been able to do that. And I think that's because Team Wolf attracted all of the people who were already questioning what was going on in their lives and who they were and what they wanted to be and how they wanted to be. And I think that that helped. And that's why I really enjoyed the show. It's very admirable. Oh. It's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Are you excited about the new Teen Wolf movie? Yes. Yes. So I'm actually really excited. Um, one, I love the fact that all of the, the guests that we know are, are back together and they get to, I've, you know, we've been able to see them in those moments off stage and off camera when they're together. And it's so fun that they're this cute little family. And so I love that they're being able to work together again. But I, I'm i invested. You know, I, I want to know where these characters are years down the road. I want to know what happened and who got married and who had kids. And, you know, and I want to know who Melissa McCall's love interest is because they better <laughs> have her one. <laughs> she deserves love. She does. I mean, I don't care she who does. it is. I well, mean, take it, note, it you'll be held personally share. responsible for this. Wow. Right? Oh my god. I mean, it needs to be the sheriff. I'm sorry. And Sheriff John Silinski because he's still John. Will, Will, are you oh, taking yeah. notes? Yes, are you taking absolutely. notes? Absolutely. I don't know if y'all know this, but the movie's being made right now. Like I, I <laughs> We we have tried to explain these things to him, like about the name John I, and the fact I, that his I'm name right is John. Yeah. I, I've never <laughs> fought you on this. I don't know why you're getting so defensive. I tweeted about Somebody on the, I think it was the Howler account, wrote that they didn't want to see Melissa and the sheriff together. And she was like, I just hope it's not Noah Stolinski. And I legitimately was like, who is Noah Stolinski? 
We do that a lot. Yeah. And yeah, I think I like to say that. Yeah. Like we do it constantly on the pod. It's a problem. Yeah. And I just, yeah. So uh, his name is John. I mean, and I don't care if she's with Sheriff. I would love to see her with Sheriff, but I'm okay with Chris Argent because J.R. Bourne, there is no problem with J.R. Bourne. <laughs> um, that is so true. But I just, you know, she deserves love. I mean, come on, let's find her somebody. I don't mm-hmm. care who it is. Agreed. If you could be any Teen Wolf creature, what would you be? I mean, I feel like that where i mean a werewolf would be really cool you got your i think the advanced healing the super reflexes the sharper senses all of that would be super helpful yeah. i feel mm-hmm. like but you're running from hunters all the time and i feel like you gotta get in a lot of fights and i'm just not very fighty behind a person i like to use <laughs> my words rather than my fists <laughs> And so cutting remarks. I, yes. That's that's yes. what you go for. <laughs> and so yes. So I feel like that because of that, I would rather be a spark or an emissary or some sort of witchy person that I could, you know, that I could just put a hex on you rather than slash you up with my claws. <laughs> nice, I, like that. I also feel like they can hide easier. You know what I mean? Like we didn't know mm-hmm. Deaton was an emissary until way into it. It's that's true. true. Well, love for Melissa McCall aside, uh, what, what else would you like to see in the new movie? Um, well, I mean, I think that the burning question is who is Eli Hale's mother, right? Or other parent? I, yeah. I mean, I want to know who where this kid came from. I do have headcanon about where this kid came from. It's pretty funny. Can we hear it? Go on. <laughs> so my headcanon is that Derek wanted a kid, but, you know, he's got all these issues with women that he just really cannot get it straight and so he gets an egg from cora and he goes to a random sperm bank for the donation for the dad and then he thought and as the kid gets older and older everybody constantly says this kid reminds me so much of styles and then he finds that then he says hey all right i'm gonna go check into this donor because this is weird and i'm sick of it and he finds out the donor is really styles who needed money for his jeep so he made a donation at sperm bank and that Eli Hale is really Stas Falinski's kid. Oh where where I do I sign so my much. name to get this rom-com directly <laughs> into my eyeballs and ear holes? Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, it's perfect because that kid looks like Stiles. He totally does. And see, I can just see Derek, you know, getting this kid at the hospital and not knowing what to do with it. And so Sheriff is there and he's like, John. <laughs> I need you you know what am I gonna do I'm gonna terrible dad why did I think I could do this and sheriff would be like no man we got you and then sheriff is the granddaddy to this kid Aww. and it's gonna raise him up just like that I See? want every part of this love it so in my much. soul it's so cute we got, a, we got a three yes. men in a baby situation here and it's awesome you know, it is it three is. men in a wolfle but, so. but um you know also, I want to see Chris Argent's grief beard back. <laughs> I mean, I don't like I, I don't like Chris hurting. I don't like the turmoil that 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 grips his soul. But that mm-hmm. beard is pretty appalling. <laughs> so could it just be like a, you know, it looks like the grief beard, but he's actually like a, I'm in a really good place with myself beard. Yeah, it could it be an emotional sound good. healing beard. Oh, I like that. It could be an emotional healing beard. I like that. It could be an I'm in love beard. I don't care. Yeah. I just like that beard. There's options. Yeah. My heart is full of emotion. That emotion doesn't have to be grief. Like 
other emotions can manifest in facial hair. Yes. Okay, writers, writers, seriously, what is with being so mean to these folks? Everybody on this show can't just go through something. They got to go through something and nothing, something and something and something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called yeah. drama. Look it up. I know, but come on now. Come on, let's spread it out. Poor Derek Hale. Could right? y'all do anything more to that poor guy? Let Derek be happy. Yes. Yes. Derek deserves happiness. He does. Well, well That's hopefully. So true. But, but if that kid, I'm going to tell you right now, if that kid belongs to Kate for some weird reason, we're going to riot. I'm telling I, you, we're going to riot. I don't know anything, but I'm <laughs> fairly confident that is not going to be the case. So. I surely hope that they would not do that. But yeah, that would be the one thing. I can deal with just about anything else, but not that. I just can't. Understandable. Understandable. <laughs> and you yeah. know, my opinion is what is important for this movie. <laughs> hey, mm-hmm. hey, mm-hmm. I understand. I get it. I get it. I'm right there with you. I feel like the last like two seconds of the movie is going to be like, you like being like, oh, my mother? You want to know who she is? She's, and then it cuts to black. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Where would you like to see the Teen Wolf universe go if it were to continue after the movie? You know, I'm I'm pretty on board with Eli becoming the new Teen Wolf. I'm okay with that because I feel like, to me, Beacon Hills needs a hail. It needs a hail protecting it. So I would be, I'd be okay if he became the like new Teen Wolf and they it followed him with what happens in him rebuilding a hail pack and. And things like that. Um, I mean, I love anything. Obviously, I love anything that's got the parents involved. I think I'd love to find out more about who's in Eichenhaus. Yeah. I think that would be really cool. I I feel like there's just this whole world of opportunity of what could be possibly in Eichenhaus that I think would make a really cool place. Agreed. Yes, agreed. Hard agree. Do you have any fun convention stories that you'd like to share with us? Oh, <laughs> which one do you cry for this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's funny. It was funny to me, and it's funny now that my my staff thinks it's funny now. But in 2015, so the second event, uh, Tyler had the first. Tyler Hecklin had the first photo op in the morning, and <laughs> he overslept. And I am ridiculously like my schedule. I don't like it to get off. Oh, I get like it. When, you know, I'm over here like timing the end of the panels at a meet and greet. I'm like, get get out. We're done. You know, I'm I'm very much a let's a stickler for my schedule. And he overslept, and <laughs> it was time for his photo op. And I was like, where is he? And I'm calling the driver and. Joe, who's our, always been our driver, and he's wonderful. He's like, Betsy, I don't know. I've been waiting out here for like half an hour. I took everybody else over. I don't know where he's at. So I call, and he thought that I was the hotel wake-up call. So he hangs up on me. And I I, I call him right back. And he's like, answering the phone. I'm sorry, Betsy. I know. I'm sorry. I couldn't be right there. He's freaking out because he knows that I'm a stickler. And so he's like, I have to take a shower though. I have to get, you know, and he goes, and I have to pack my stuff. He goes, can you give me like five minutes? I was like, okay, Tyler, but you have to hurry. You're already late. Well, he ends up getting there. And by the time, you know, he gets in the car, he gets there and he gets all his stuff. He's almost 45 minutes late for his post. And they bring him into the back door and I'm standing in the green room. And all of a sudden he le- looks over, like he leans in the doorway like this. 
<laughs> he makes his face like, I know you're going to kill me. <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I was like, you are in huge trouble. And he's like, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I go and take him to his photo ops. And he's like, it's okay. That's, I got this. I promise. And bless his heart because he is a consummate professional. And he just, I mean, he got through those photo ops like great. He was just just shoving them through there. But <laughs> after it was over with, he's sitting in the green room and my mama was in there. And my mama says, my mama's a sweet Southern Georgia girl. And she says, how'd it go when you got here? And he was like, <laughs> she said, you know, that could have gone worse, right? And he goes, yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> but bless his heart. I mean, we ended up picking it back up and we were back to normal after about two hours. But yeah, he his little face when he first got there, that was like, oh, God, she's going to kill me. Um, <laughs> so that's like that. That's always a funny story. Um, and then in 2016, during our charity auction, one of the the dad of one of the fans, um, his name is John. <laughs> about John. We call him Con Dad because he's amazing. And he comes every year with his daughter, and that's their bonding, and it's so fun. Aww. But he always donates a lot to our charity auction, and he buys those. And he, um, he bought a lap dance from JR for <laughs> and gave it to me for my birthday. And so Aww. there's this very funny video of JR giving me a lap dance ballroom for charity. <laughs> so that's a fun story. So the first time that I met JR was at Days of the Wolf in L.A. in February of 2014. Mm -hmm. It was the very, very, very first Team Wolf Con. Yeah, we 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 worked well, that one. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. So I had VIP tickets. So we all the VIPs, we got like little meet and greets with every one of the guests. So JR comes in our room and there's 10 of us around the table. Y'all met JR, you know, like he oh, yeah. can't remember names. He can't his memory is terrible. I love him. He can't remember anything. And <laughs> he table and he's like you know what's your name and he wants to he you know he wants to know all of our names and he's repeating it and then then he goes around the table and he asks us where we're from and then he goes around again and he wants to know what we do for a living well I mean there's people like my friend Heather she's a psych nurse and then there's people that are like oh I'm the marketing director of some you know fortune 500 company and there's all these things. Well, I'm just a little office manager of an electrical contractor. I mean, nothing exciting. I was at the time. And I was like, this is so boring compared to everything that these people are saying. And I'm directly across from him at the table. And when he got to me, he goes, what do you do? And I said, I'm a stripper. <laughs> and I was like, I'm a stripper. And he went, oh. <laughs> he was so caught off guard. And he goes, oh my God, are you really? And I was like, no, God. No. <laughs> he was like, no, I was like, do I look like a stripper? And he was like, and you know, of course, he's too nice to comment on that. And he said, and he's like, that's hilarious. He goes, what do you really do? And I said, I'm just an office manager. So I didn't think that was very funny. And he goes, you're a stripper now. And so, <laughs> so he goes around the table and it was this whole big thing about me being a stripper. And we go into the pit directly into the panel. And my friend Heather, who's the psych nurse, she comes up to ask a question. He goes, she's a psycho and she's a stripper. <laughs> 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 
So Heather's a psycho and I'm a stripper. And so, and he wrote on my autograph, my very first autograph I have of him on the wall, it says, Hey stripper, love JR. And, um, (laughs) and so we have a thing where I call where I always send him something and I'll say stripper loves JR. And so, yeah, so that's our thing from, you know, eight years ago, six years ago, eight years ago that stripper stripper loves JR. (laughs) But it's the little things that you remember. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, who got the lap dance from whom? Yeah, exactly. Know, right? See, it was payback. That's why I was like, show me what you can do. <laughs> There's actually video of that lap dance. It's pretty funny. But he's such a trooper. God love him. I mean, there's not many people who have as who are as charismatic as J.R. Boyd is. He just is. You can't really have a conversation with him without like kind of a little bit falling in love. I feel like he just is oh. that kind of person. Yeah, he's a good guy. What have been some of your favorite panels from past cons? I mean, probably my favorite panel would have to be in 2014, the boys panel. When um, the I think the question was, if you had theme music every time you walked into the room, what would the song be? And I have this great video of Lyndon and Jr. singing the Baby Monkey song from, <laughs> from YouTube or Vine or whatever it is. But then Orny Adams starts playing Don't Stop Believing. He plays, starts playing the beginning of Journey. And, you know, we're in a post-glee world, so everybody knows it. <laughs> and the entire, he starts playing it, and the entire ballroom, you know, 300-something people start singing it. And their faces are like, what is happening? <laughs> and JR's recording from the stage, and Orny's just playing it. And they, we sing, like, three verses right there, the whole ballroom. Oh, wow. And so that wow. kind of became the defining moment for Howler. I mean, we still like don't stop believing it's our theme song, everything we do. We do it for karaoke every year at our cons. And so that would probably be, I would think the most defining moment for us in 2017, the last panel that we had with the whole group, because the show had wrapped, there was no future in sight. It was our last Howler. We weren't planning to do anymore. And so that last panel was really it was really poignant everybody was emotional and just very excited we just raised over 30 grand for charity so i mean it was a very it was a really really awesome panel that one so that one meant a lot to me i think but probably the most meaningful ones or the most the ones that most people would remember are every time these boys have a panel together (laughs) it deteriorates into just (laughs) smut and nastiness <laughs> I mean, it starts off so good and then all of a sudden it just hits the gutter as fast as possible <laughs> I, so, I i think we'll fit in pretty pretty well with that because so do our the episodes of our podcast yeah i legitimately have to get up at the at the beginning of the boys panel and say this is a disclaimer that what you know what you were about to hear is probably going to be x-rated i mean i have to give a disclaimer yeah. <laughs> i'm like if you're a child and you're here at your own risk you know i mean <laughs> get up and leave if you need to i mean because it just whew, straight into the gutter every time every time <laughs> and i'm like betsy why do you keep scheduling these things <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. I mean, we've turned into who's your favorite we've had them turn who's your favorite Disney princess into which one you want to f- <laughs> And I'm like, oh yeah. God, y'all 
Like, could we, is there any question we could ask that won't become Mary Kill? Yeah. Is, is there? I, mean, I don't know. It, it truly is. The boys are just, you know, it's just the way it is. <laughs> but I would say that most Howler fans live for the boys panel because they know that it's going to go off the rails. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You will have to make sure you set aside that time when it can June. Because also this year, um, we always have an exclusive panel that's just for um, like our higher tier tickets. And um, this year it's JR and Ian Bowen. So Lord knows that one's going to go off the rails too. Nice. <laughs> Very that's nice. super fun. Well, well, speaking of, what else should fans get excited for for this HowlerCon? I mean, the fact that it's happening and we get to have it. <laughs> Yes, that is that is mean, quite good. Seriously, I think that everybody's just ready to be together again and yeah. and excited that we get to be in one place and that we actually get to have this. But the charity auctions are always a lot of fun. One, they just raise a lot of money. It's really cool to see how much things sell for. But I think they're also fun because you're doing something good and you realize that everything that, yes, it's exciting how much money something goes for, but I mean, we saw bobbleheads at the last con of each character. I had bobbleheads made of all of them that went for like over a thousand dollars, like twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a piece. It was crazy. That's awesome. But I, I mean, I think that people are excited about your podcast because um, that's pretty new for us. And then we just announced that um, Ian Nelson's going to play a little mini concert before oh, our nice. party. Oh, cute. Very and nice. Yeah. It's so cute. I'm so I know. Like I'm like, can we call him Baby Derek anymore? Because I, I know it's like I shouldn't. I should not be saying it that way anymore. But I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I'm in my 30s now. It just comes out. I, I get it. I mean, like he he's perpetually this teenager. But I'm like, yeah. When people see him and they realize he's 26 and he's no longer that teenager, yeah, we're gonna be okay. <laughs> But yeah, he asked me about it and he worked it out where he can play a little short set on Saturday night. So that's awesome. That's so that really, really cool. That'd be fun. So yeah. I mean, and there's a photo booth on Friday night. That's always fun. And karaoke. Nice. Fantastic. <laughs> so, I mean, we like to, I mean, I, I I hope everyone has a really good time. I feel like after two years of a pandemic that we need to have a good time. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Definitely. I miss conventions so very much. It's been yeah. so long since Me I've been too. to one. Me too. And I'm so ready to get this one done. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. It has just been a night. I mean, truly, it's been such a nightmare to have to postpone it twice. And then I'm like, it has to happen this year. And, you know, long about mid-February, I was like, this is going to happen. Holy crap, this is really going to happen. <laughs> and so... You know, thankfully, we've just been kind of in overdrive mode since then, but yeah. So this is the final HowlerCon. I know a lot of work has gone into it. Do you think you have any other conventions in your future? Well, I've been promising Tom Felton for years that I would have a DracoCon. Really? Nice. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, um, so probably that one will probably happen sooner rather than later. It, it, working around his crazy school will be where that one will be that one will probably certainly happen and then i would love 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 to have like a fam of steel superman supergirl superman and lois supergirl 
convention. I love the show. I think Tyler Hackman's doing an amazing job. Yes, um, absolutely. But, um, but Bitsy and Alex and Jordan are just, that whole cast, I feel like, seems like they'd be a lot of fun at a convention. And the show's doing so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I would love to do that, but you know, but then when I, when that thought pops in my head or I speak it aloud, all my friends are like, "Oh, <laughs> not again!" They're like, "No, Betsy, no, stop!" <laughs> so I need to remind you. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I mean, yes, probably the Draco Con one, but I don't know about anything else. I mean, I'd love to. Like I said, I. I love doing them. The planning and organization part of it, as crazy and mad as it is, it's my favorite part. Uh, you know, I love the moving parts and making sure my probably my absolute favorite part of any of it is trying to arrange the schedule for the weekend. One of the things that I disliked at other co- at conventions is that I had to pick and choose where I went. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't do yeah. everything because every, the schedule overlaps. And in a big convention, you can't, there's nothing you can do about that. It just is what it is. But for a small one like ours, any one fan can do every single solitary thing at our convention. Nice. And I have, I work the schedule. I mean, it's fast and you have to really know what you're, you know, you have to know where you're going every day and every minute, but it's doable. And because I didn't like that, I hated like, oh, I can't go to this panel because I want to have this photo op or, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't do this meet and greet because it's at the same time as this panel I wanted to see. So I, I try very hard to make sure our schedule allows any one person to do everything. And, but getting moving parts for like this year, we have nine guests and they've got photo ops both days. And we've got uh, six panels, I think over the weekend and 10 meet and greets. And, you know, I mean, it just, it's, it's a lot of moving parts and getting everything into this schedule to make sure that you can do everything. But it's my favorite part. This show, and, and Harry, Harry Potter did too, but this show, it's it's brought so many really amazing people in my life that I would never have known if it wasn't for this show. And, uh, you know, and, and so much of my life has happened because of Teen Wolf. You know mm-hmm. I mean? Like all these conventions would have never happened had I not watched the show right. and, you know, and met some of the people. And, so many of the fans and that we've been able to meet and you know amy and i are fans ourselves and so that's why we wanted to make this convention but the number of people that have come to us at our events and you know told us that how much the conventions mean to them and how much that you know i mean we've had people say that HowlerCon was the only thing that kept them going that they were the only that knowing that they had this event to go to was was what kept them alive and that's a lot to 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 one know that it's a it's a great heartwarming feeling to know that you are a small part of that for this person but it's also a little scary and you know I mean it's a little scary knowing that something that you have done has this much influence on on someone and um you know, and so we, we've always tried to kind of live up to that. We want to be, you know, we want to put on a good event. We want to make it relatively affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to, again, make it safe for, for anybody to be able to come and be who they are without fear. Because I feel like there's so, 
so many of the Teen Wolf fans and especially the HowlerCon fans that kind of live in a bit of that fear and anxiety in their normal lives mm -hmm. that if we can take that away from them and give them some happiness for, you know, for a few days, we, you know, we, we really see it as our HowlerCon fam. You know, they're, it's our family. And, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, even though we had said no more, we were done, <laughs> that we decided to do the reunion because we missed seeing the family too. Yeah. And so that part's really awesome. And I think I'm glad that you guys are going to get to see it. I'm glad that y'all are going to be there and, and kind of get to see with all of the fans and how kind of laid back and easygoing and fun it is. So. Yeah, I'm very excited. I, yeah, we yeah. can't wait. Yeah. And to, to document it. You yeah, know? it's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yes, very much so. I'm excited. It's going to be great. Oh, it's really beautiful what you've said about it. And it, before Teen Wolf, I was really involved in the uh, Buffy fandom and then Supernatural. And I met a lot of friends I've had for years through uh, Supernatural conventions. And yeah, it felt like a family. It's really amazing. It's kind of wild, this whole internet thing. <laughs> <laughs> Betsy, this has been an absolute pleasure getting yes. to talk to you about something we all love and then to talk about this event that you're throwing that's like this miracle thing that's going <laughs> to happen is. in New Jersey. And it's it's just fantastic. Thank you we for having wait. me. We and we so are excited. very excited to have y'all at the event. We had a great time talking with Betsy, but now it's time for spoilers. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for The Overlooked. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Thank you, Miss McCall. You're him, aren't you? Him? The bad guy. You have no idea. This was the episode I I was watching it, and I went back because I I've done a rewatch of Teen Wolf a few times, but to sit down with you guys, I went back and watched the episode before this one, this one, and the episode after this one, and I feel like this was about the time where I was really latching on to Derek as like a character, you know, like he was going to be one of the ones that I made headcanon about and wrote fan fiction about and you know really dug into and was rooting for and this was the episode where I was like wow they are really just going to like pilot on this guy like he's never gonna get a break and so it was just clear jumping from him killing Boyd in this episode and then you know later that it it's just dare like it's Derek's purpose in life to suffer. Like that's his purpose mm -hmm. as a character is just abject suffering. So then, you know, later when we figure out that, of course, like whatever her name is, boo thing, Druid McEnglish teacher or whatever, I forget <laughs> her actual name. It's uh, hyphenated. She ends up being bad. I was like, of course, of course, of course, one more person in Derek's life that he opens up to just eating and gets intimate with ends up trying to kill him ends up being awful ends up dead like it just it it hurt it hurts me it hurts me every time and it I feel like that's what is so 
miraculous and wonderful about season four, Derek, is that maybe a little off screen, we see him make a decision to not let it beat him, like to not let it, you know, like Derek has been sort of like grumpy, silent, looming, uh, angry, sort of like that that has been his character up until this point and in season three we really see like wow okay like dude has a right dude has a right to be that way and so then in season four when he actually starts to get a little bit of a personality it's really refreshing you know like Kate was talking about where he is he makes jokes and stuff and then he tells Scott like you're gonna be going to be good at this you know like he gives compliments and he's helpful and who is this guy you know but I just I really think in my mind there's sort of this idea that Derek came out of everything that happened with Jennifer her name's Jennifer and decided like I get to decide who I am and how I react to the world and I can either be the person I have been like probably since the fire or at least since Laura died or I could I can be a better person and I can be the kind of person that like Scott McCall would want in his pack. Right. And so I just think that that's all. And maybe saving Cora's life later has something to do with that as well. Like seeing, being able to use the power he thought he desperately needed and giving it up to save someone. Maybe that also is a turning point for him. I don't know. I just, I really loved Derek's character coming out of this season moving into the next one um and this was kind of the point where I was like yeah this is going to be this is going to be the guy I root for the whole time and styles and then together obviously, <laughs> obviously. obviously. it's really, it's really yeah. interesting yeah yeah I didn't really think about that but and you see I mean you, you see hints of that just small hints of who he is or could be underneath earlier and I'm a sucker for that kind of a character. I'm a sucker for a character that is like putting on a front and inside is a huge mess. Like that's just, yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like, you you know, you see a little bit of that, like usually with Styles, he's like making sarcastic comments, making facial expressions that could one day become smiles but I do like the idea that after everything that happens in season three he kind of gets to a point where it's like okay get busy living or get busy dying like either something needs to change or this is just over like there's no point in continuing on and he got to that point you know like maybe he thought he had experienced rock bottom and I I certainly don't blame him for coming to that conclusion. And then it was like, nope, this rock bottom has a sub-basement. Oh. And then actually, and then continue following through floors like like the ashen remains of your childhood home until finally you hit the real rock bottom. And then it's like, okay, you know, I, I, I can either just die here or not. So here Stiles says, Derek is like this because some girl broke his little heart. 
I feel like at this point he doesn't know about Kate, but then a couple episodes later he does. Do you think Peter just continues the story on after the episode ends and moves on to Derek's like next romantic trauma? Oh, I see what you're saying. Like at the end of the episode, Peter's like, and then. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. And you know, like, what if you know, Calissa had had posited in the first season that Derek must have told him, and it's like, what if Peter just let the secret out? So very first episode like pilot from the get-go styles knows Derek by sight and knows about the fire then we see him piece some things together about the fire and the argents from the police files and then there's nothing until after this episode when we get to not just a few episodes later but then when we get to the de-aged Derek stuff yeah. which is season four four four, four. four. Mm-hmm. yep where Styles is one of the first people to be like this is not good because he will trust her. like this was the age that like that whole thing was going on that was not good and so it's like Styles clearly has details about what went on with Derek and Kate to the point where he understands what it means for Derek to be de-aged and around her he would have to have a lot of nuance about that situation to be concerned like that I think and so I just Mm -hmm. yeah but but I don't I don't I don't know if I mean I guess if it benefited him or if he was just trying to be odd Peter might say something but we don't know that Peter knows like we have no proof that Peter knows a hundred percent that the fire was because of Derek and Kate not just Kate acting on her own Mm -hmm. but it also feels like something private enough that like I just don't think Derek would tell Styles like I I think I think Peter knew because he was in on it with Kate this is another of Calissa's theories that has become a, a, a bedrock of the show. Uh, I think that makes head head canon. Okay. Regardless of how we interpret it, interpret that side of things, it is strange that just based on what he says, it makes it sound like at this point, at the point of visionary, he doesn't know at least the details about Kate because otherwise it would be really weird to be like, oh, because like some girl broke his heart. Yeah, it like this isn't new information to you, right? Like right. it feels like he doesn't know, but then we get confirmation in dialogue in later episodes uh, of this season that he does know, and it's just really strange because it's like, what was happening off screen that would explain that? Yeah, it. I I don't think it makes sense for Derek to tell anyone this information. Like I can't think of a scenario up to this point in the show that would lead right. him to comfortably or not or or in any way in, in any comfort level to tell this story right. you know yeah, and Derek's it just not a sharer yeah he's not a sharer but, and he doesn't like styles like he styles is very grating you know so i don't think he secretly loves styles but you know it, it, it he like him secretly it, on the inside exactly but it's just this is not something he would tell people and I feel yeah. like, but someone had to tell him because this isn't something Styles can put together. Right. Like he put together that right. Kate like, I think was even in if, on it, but it had to be Peter. Right. Like who else? 
even if Styles walks out of the loft and runs into Derek immediately after this episode ends, like 30 minutes later, and <clears> says, <throat> Peter told me about Paige. Is it true? Maybe Derek would give him a yes or no answer, but he certainly wouldn't extrapolate and expand upon it. And he certainly wouldn't then volunteer information about the other most awful thing that ever happened to him concerning a woman. It just doesn't make sense. What if Styles doesn't roll up to him and say, Peter told me about Paige? What if he rolls up and he's like, Peter told this story about you when you were like a teenager about how your first girlfriend ended in heartbreak and now you have blue eyes? Is all that stuff true? And Derek just assumes he's talking about Kate? I, that would Maybe. only be if Paige didn't happen to him. Well, I know, but I'm saying we're trying to find a way right, yes, that then, this all works. Yes, right? no, and that so would have I'm to saying, be like, what he said. He's like, he's like, he told you about Kate, and he's like, what? What? Because I Paige. feel like, like from oh, that piece of information, Styles could extrapolate a lot of things because he did have right. the case files, so he has more information than probably anybody else because he's the only character who knows about all the supernatural stuff, has met Derek, and has read the, the case file with as much detail as is in there. He's right. also pretty good at making connections between things. And if he knew anything about what Scott's extremely awkward dinner at the Argent house was like, he might have even had a little bit of an inkling that something's off with her because it is creepy that she's like, oh, hey, brown eyes. It's like, ooh you're an adult woman like what are you doing you know like yeah it, it feels i mean maybe scott doesn't think it's like that bad because he's an innocent puppy but i feel like styles would be like well that's a f red flag who says that what the f yeah my sure. dad would arrest for the sure. shit out of her like you know right. uh it feels like styles could extrapolate from just that one piece of information and so if we're trying to find a way to make this work i mean one way is it didn't really happen to him, supported by all the evidence we've discussed through this episode. So Styles goes and is like, mm -hmm. is this thing true that like you got your heart broken and it turned your eyes blue and you know that's like kind of why you are the way you are? And Derek's like, I can't how how did he even know about Kate? And then Styles is like, Oh f that is some new ass information, and kind of puts it together. <laughs> The other thing, yeah, the kettle processing. boiling. We're gonna be here for a while. So I was like, I need to pop like three more Adderall for this. Honestly, like this is gonna take some processing power. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no other way that Styles knows. Just a few episodes later, yeah, about Kate. Just find it fr so frustrating that like the episode ends with Styles saying he'll ask Derek about Paige if he has to, but then it just never comes back up again. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it really feels like your theory solves a lot of narrative problems. Like it solves the problem of Styles saying he's going to ask Derek and then not doing it on screen. It solves the problem of Styles not knowing about Kate in this episode and then knowing about it a couple episodes later. The problem of basketball being something specifically associated with Peter and not Derek in previous seasons. He mentions in season one, we see the picture of him as a basketball star in season two solves the problem of Peter being more emotional telling this story than nearly any other time we've seen him, solves the problem of Derek staring meaningfully at the spiral 
at the end of Visionary as if he were aware of the context around it when supposedly it was Peter who was present for that event and not Derek. It just feels like it makes everything line up better. Yes. Okay, so the only caveat to that is we know for a fact that Derek's eyes were blue before he became an alpha. (laughs) If this story is about Peter and Derek was not in love with Paige, did not try to turn Paige, did not have to kill Paige, then what's Derek's blue eye story? Like, why are Derek's eyes blue? Because that is a fact. Peter can't make that up. Mm -hmm. So if Peter made up the whole story, then we still have an unknown variable of then why are Derek's eyes blue? Like, what's his blue eye turning story? Yeah. I mean, I I really like Kalissa's idea that it's because he believes he caused his family's death. And that also solves a problem, which is that Cora makes that comment at the beginning of this episode that Derek is very different now than when she knew him. But this whole story took place a year before the last time Cora was around him. So I just feel like that feels very right. strange in this episode yes. where it's like, and I didn't notice anything being different for the year that followed. But now, six years later, I notice a marked difference. And it's like, right. well, but if his eyes turned blue after the fire, she wouldn't have seen him again mm-hmm. after that. He thought she was dead. So it would make right. sense that she's like, he's very different now. I don't know exactly what happened. I mean, she would know, of right. course, that about the fire, but she wouldn't know right. that Derek felt responsible for it. So she wouldn't have that vital piece of information right. to explain that aspect of him being a different person right regardless of whose story it is i do really like this idea that when the scheme goes awry he's kind of at a crossroads like he could learn from it and become a less manipulative person or he could go the opposite route kind of abandon all attempts to find his humanity and let his whole life be a game of manipulation that's kind of his fatal flaw Unfortunately, it's also his resurrection flaw, and that's why he's still around. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, I do find that character arc interesting. So I wanted to talk a little bit, the building blocks for relationships that we start to notice throughout this season, especially in the episodes before and after this one. This is the season, and I, I know I've talked on here before about how much I'm also a Stidia shipper like hardcore, which I know is in direct opposition to being a hardcore steric shipper, but I do what I want. Um, <laughs> so th- <laughs> this is the season that Lydia and style like truly became friends mm-hmm. and they don't hit us over the head with it, but there's a real banter between them now that Lydia is in on everything and that she's sort of coming into her, what we'll understand to be her banshee powers, Styles has clearly backburnered his sort of puppy love affection for her. And I think it really allows for the actual blooming of a true friendship between them, um, which we know will lead much later into a real intimacy and then eventually into romantic love. I really think that sometimes being friends first is a really good idea, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it forms this really great basis for something to to bloom from. And so I really enjoyed getting to see the banter between them and getting to see their relationship kind of open up without 
the awkwardness of Styles wanting her to understand that she's meant to be with him. I think mm-hmm. that it's what brings them ultimately to being a romantic couple is the fact that he lets go of making her want to love him and just really focuses on just being friends with her. And then in opposition to that, it's really interesting that we kind of have Allison and Scott doing the exact opposite, like sort of the reverse of that, right? So they are learning to be friends instead of romantic partners and their interactions we sort of see like in the closet and you know working (laughs) together which that scene was hilarious we sort of see two people who were leaning in to a lot of what made them a great romantic couple and bringing that along to their friendship but letting go you know I think this episode and the episode after is when we really start to see both of them let let go privately of the idea that they might actually resume their romantic relationship someday. Like I think that Scott especially was really holding on to that mm-hmm. Mr. Like I'll wait forever. <laughs> but I think they're starting to see that those paths aren't going to come back and that that's okay. And that they can still be friends. Enter Isaac. <laughs> and, and my girl um, Kira. And Kira. And let's not forget Styles and Malia. I like him and Malia together. Do I? Did I like them as Endgame? No, but I loved that relationship, and I loved where it came into Styles's life. And so, still here for life. Um, yeah, I I love that journey for you, Will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> again, not Endgame, but no, beautiful. we've t- we've tied him to the steric tracks at this point. You can have good, multiple good. I like Stalia. I also like Malira. I like Steric. No. So. Yeah. Look, all the ships. That's so fine. If ships. it's just Steric, um, then I've got Malira. Yeah. I, it's a win-win. Winning all over this. That's right. That's right. Also a really good, a really good option. That's a good yep. ship. But yeah, I just really love their friendship. And so it, it, in later seasons, when you get to see them fall in love with each other it's almost like it's sort of they're surprised right which is Mm -hmm. beautiful i agree with you like intellectually and academically and not from a shipper space that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon hills huge thanks to our guest co-host ashby brain wolfies we hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things teen wolf follow us on twitter and instagram at rtbh podcast and tumblr and tiktok at return to beacon hills If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 9, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Also, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ashby Gray, G-R-A-Y. And you can follow the What the What podcast on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at What the What Media, all one word. And find us on Twitter at WTW underscore media. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.